Well, I want to begin this morning uh, with a book recommendation. Summer's coming up. Uh, we will come out with our Tri-City Reads book list, but this one is in advance of it, a fiction book uh, called Cry the Beloved Country. Uh, you can see it there on the screen or here in my hands. Uh, this is a great book set in South Africa uh, during the time of the apartheid. Uh, it's about a father from uh, the country who travels to Johannesburg to look for his wayward son. So uh, the father is a pastor of rural church, a man of faith. Uh, he and his wife have not heard from their son in years. And so there's kind of a reason that prompts him to go to Johannesburg. And while he's there, he's I'm going to look for my son. Because over the years, uh, there's been a fear that has grown within uh, his own heart and the heart of his wife. Uh, they, they fear what's become of their son. They fear what trouble he has found or what trouble has found him. And so when the man gets to the city and begins to look for his son, his, his heart kind of sinks lower and lower as he begins to realize that indeed his fears have been uh, justified. And so uh, as he begins to realize the, the trouble that his son is in, well, things get more and more difficult. And so I want to read a passage just to kind of get us into this mindset, which will help us for uh, our text today. His name is Kamalo, and uh, he's sitting here kind of at the end of a long day with his, with his friend. And so it says this, Kumalo rose. He said, I shall go to my, my room. Good night to you all. I shall walk with you, my friend. They walked to the gate of the little house, and Kumalo lifted to his friend a face that was full of suffering. This thing, he said, this thing here in my heart is nothing but fear. Fear, fear. I understand, my friend. Yet it is nevertheless foolish to fear that one thing in this great city with its thousands and thousands of people. It's not a question of wisdom and foolishness. It's just fear. Come and pray, my friend. There is no prayer left in me. I am dumb here inside. I have no words at all. Good night, my brother. Good night. His friend watched him go up the little path. He looked very old. His friend turned and walked back into the mission and thought, there are times, no doubt, when God seems no more to be about the world. I thought that was a poignant scene of a father's heart for his son. Clearly uh, a father in great distress. Clearly at a point where he just feels like there is there is nothing more that he could say. And if you've been in that situation, uh, you know the heartache that comes from loving someone who is on a path to self-destruction and in fact keeps walking down that path again and again. There's lots of reasons for this, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's drugs and alcohol. Maybe it's impulsive or risky behavior. Maybe it's levels of anger or self-centeredness and they just push everyone away again and again. And like Kumalo, at a certain point, we just feel, feel numb, feel that we have no more words, feel there's no more prayers left within us. There's just been too much hurt, too much disappointment. Or like his friend, maybe we feel like there are times when God just doesn't seem to be about the world, that he's just totally absent. And when that happens, there are questions that come to our mind, right? Questions that, that don't really seem to have an answer. Like, how, how do I keep loving this person? when they're acting this way? How do I keep my faith in this kind of situation? Well, our passage today has some needed insight into these kinds of, 
of situations because in it we see how Jesus himself responds to the rebellion and to the stubbornness of his own people. In fact, there are two main things that we are going to see from Jesus that will help us. We're going to see a determined will and also a compassionate heart. So I'll read the text and then we'll look at it in light of of those two things. So this is Luke uh, chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So that's God's word to us this morning. Two things, as I said. The first is this. We see here the determined will of Jesus. The determined will of Jesus. Uh, This all begins with an attempt to intimidate Jesus, which is interesting. Look at verse 31. At the very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. So a little bit of a context. Uh, The Pharisees were part of the religious establishment of the day, right? They had the status, they had the power. Uh, They did not like Jesus at all, mostly because he threatened those things which they held so dear, but also because he tended to, you know, point out their hypocrisy. Uh, So right away, this this friendly advice that we see from them, it it seems suspicious. Like the the Pharisees have never come and tried to help Jesus with anything before, so we're kind of wondering what actually is going on here. Uh, Herod was the ruler that the Romans had appointed over the region. He, like most of the rulers seem to be, is is unstable. He's violent. Uh, He's killed lots of people already, including Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. Uh, But Herod was always worried about public unrest. Okay, his main job from the Romans was, look, keep the peace. Keep everything, you know, peaceful. And when you kill popular public figures, it tends not to be as peaceful, right? People get upset. So Herod um, is, is nervous about that. And probably what's going on here is that he, he wasn't fond of Jesus and he knew the Pharisees weren't fond of Jesus. And so instead of doing anything directly, he just sent the Pharisees to kind of uh, push Jesus back, get him to back off in a sense, which they were happy to do. I mean, what, what Herod and the Pharisees both wanted really was for Jesus just to go back to his hometown or some little town, maybe in the Galilean area, and just to be quiet, right? Just maybe teach, work in a synagogue, but not have these thousands of people gathering together for these big ministry, big uh, public spectacles. So they needed Jesus just to understand, look, it's better for you to go away. But Jesus' response makes it clear that here he's not fooled by them and he's not intimidated by them at all. Look at verse 32. And he said to them, go and tell that fox. So the fox is Herod, uh, which makes it clear he knows they're like in cahoots some way. And fox here is not like a nice thing, okay? He's not saying he's foxy, just so you know, okay? He's, he's saying uh, a sort of derogatory thing. Foxes are sly, cunning animals, but they're also weak animals. So in that day, to call someone a fox was, was a disparaging thing. It wasn't a, a great thing, which tells us very clearly what Jesus thinks of Herod. 
Uh, he has real contempt for Herod. Doesn't think much of him at all. You see it here, but you also see it uh, when Jesus is arrested and he goes to Pilate and then Pilate sends him to Herod. And Herod loves this. He wants to talk to Jesus, wants to get some, you know, something out of him. He's questioning him. He's mocking him. And Jesus just says nothing. I came across this great line from one of the commentators about that. Leon Morris, he said this, when Jesus has nothing to say to a man, that man's position is hopeless. Okay? If Jesus has nothing to say to you, that you're not in a good situation. But, but it's not just disdain for this petty ruler that we see in the response of Jesus. We see a clear determination to accomplish the task that he has been given. And his task is a great one, right? He's come to earth to declare Right, the kingdom of God, the truths of the kingdom of God, and then to make way, to open the doors to that kingdom. And that's, that's part of how he responds. In verse 32, he says, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my course. So what he's giving there are really the hallmarks of the kingdom that we see from Jesus in his ministry. We see spiritual deliverance. We see physical healing. We see Jesus giving everyone, look, this is a picture of the glorious reality of what it means to live under the rule and reign of God. But we also see that he has a plan. He has a task, a specific task in terms of opening those doors. Uh, the next part of that verse, he says, today and tomorrow and the third day, I finish my course. Which seems uh, like it would be a reference to the cross because there's a mention of the third day and it may be an allusion to the cross, but uh, scholars tell us that actually this was like an expression of that time. It was a way of just talking about a short period of time or something that needed to be done. So basically, what Jesus is saying here is, look, tell Herod, I've got a job to do. I've got something to do and nothing you can say or do is going to stop me. I'm going to complete my mission. I'm going to be faithful. We see this also in other places. John 4, 34, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And in the very next verse, it's clear that Jesus knows what it's gonna take to actually accomplish this task. Verse 33, he says, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Now this also is fairly sharp language. There's like a, a scathing kind of irony here. What he's really saying is, look, look, you want to kill me? Then you better meet me in Jerusalem because that's where it has to happen, right? That's where you kill all of the prophets of God. We don't want to break from tradition, so just meet me there. I'll be ready because he knows what's going to happen, right? He's, he's not intimidated by them. In fact, he's determined to go to Jerusalem because he knows that he's going to be killed there. In fact, that's, that's part of the plan. And so we, hear, we see here from Jesus what we saw back in Luke 9, that his face was set to Jerusalem. He knew where he needed to go. He knew what needed to be done. This was key in accomplishing the, the purpose of his first coming, to die for the sins of the people so that the door to heaven would be opened. So the determined will is very clear. He's like, you're not, you're not going to dissuade me from this. And I think it's helpful for us to pause for a moment and think about what this determination that we see in Jesus means for us today. I mean, clearly at the time, it meant that he did actually accomplish that. He went to the cross. He died for our sins. He, he, that part was finished. But what does, it, what does it mean for us today? Because I think what we see, if we, if we stop for a moment and think about it, there is real encouragement for us here and also uh, some, some instruction for us in terms of how we live. So two things that I think we see here. 
One is that uh, we see or we should recognize that even today he is still determined to work for our good. Still determined. It hasn't changed. I mean, if you think about it this way, the cross was the hardest thing that Jesus had to do to show us love. Right, to actually bring real good into our lives. It involved threats and hardship and suffering and death. And the whole time, Jesus was like, look, I'm not, I'm not going to hesitate. I'm not going to stop. I'm going to accomplish this. I love my people. I want to glorify my Father. I'm going to get this done. But then today, when there are difficult things in our lives, we all of a sudden come to the place of wondering, I wonder if Jesus is actually at work. I wonder if he's actually helping me. I wonder if he's, if he's still bringing good into my lives. When things get difficult, we allow ourselves to start believing the lies of the enemy. And we come to a place of wondering, doubting, man, I don't know if Jesus, does he actually know what I'm going through? I mean, it's been so long, or it's so difficult, or it's so unexpected. We, we begin to really wrestle with, really, he is actually for us anymore. But when that happens, in light of this text and texts like these, we should be, we should be asking ourselves, look, why why would Jesus be any less determined to bring good into our lives now after already doing the hardest thing for us? I mean, wouldn't that continue? Wouldn't his character compel him to continue doing good in our lives? And the answer is yes, absolutely. In fact, we see it in scripture. Uh, Romans, Romans 8.34 says this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's telling us that he, he did this amazing thing for us, the necessary thing. He died, he rose again back then, but now, right now, he's at the right hand of the Father and he is, present tense, interceding for us. He's praying for us, he's intervening for us because he is still determined to bring good into our lives. So when we doubt, when we have those thoughts and when we feel, maybe we just feel it sometimes, like we're not even sure that God is for us. We can go to texts like these, remind ourselves, look, he, nothing's changed. We can trust his determination to help us. That's the first thing. The second thing is not so much an encouragement, but more of a instruction, a lesson in a sense. And, and that is this, in light of the determination of Jesus, we should also be determined. Now we aren't, we aren't called to be Jesus, obviously, but we are called to be like him. And so when we have a sense of the call of God on our lives and we set out down a path that he is leading us, we should also be determined to see it through. And just to be clear, I'm, I'm not just talking about, you know, big calls of God like we might associate with the call of God, like to go to missions, to go overseas, to go to vocational ministry, something like that. I'm talking about the, the hundreds or thousands of specific calls that God has placed on the lives of his people to reveal the kingdom of God to the people around us. And if you're a follower of Jesus, all of us have these kinds of calls on our lives. Uh, if you're a mom, for example, you have a call of God on your life to reveal Christ to your children in the way that you, you interact with them, in the way that you, you love them and care for them and discipline them. The whole, the whole time, it's an opportunity to show to them, look, this is what it looks like to be changed by the grace of God. So, so that they can see the effect of the gospel actually on our lives. Dads, uh, similar thing. We have a call of God on our lives to serve and sacrifice for our family as Christ did. Caregivers have a call of God to, to serve and sacrifice for the needs of a family member, 
uh, perhaps a friend, someone who's getting old, someone who's ill. Neighbors have a call from God to reach out and connect with the people around them so they might know God's love, so we could grow in relationship, have an opportunity to, to bless them in some way. Whoever we are, wherever we are, there's a calling from God on our lives to love people in this way. There's some area of obedience, and these callings are callings of significance, which is why there will always be opposition if we are responding to the call of God, just like we see here with Jesus. And, and we, we will be tempted We'll be tempted to abandon the call because it's, because it's not going to be easy. Because uh, it will be difficult, it will be costly. Because perhaps as we're trying to be faithful, it doesn't seem like it's working. Like it just seems like we're, we're trying to do the thing that God has called us to do, but there's no fruit in it. We may feel like it's unfair. Like why do I have this burden on me, but these other people in my lives or my family, they, they don't have it? Or they're not being as faithful? Why am I the one who has to carry this? There are so many reasons why we get to the point of saying, look, it's just not, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm tired. I'm, I'm done with it. But when we get to that point, I think it's helpful to look again at the character of Christ and remind ourselves, look, Jesus didn't let anyone or anything knock him off his course. Not because he, he thought it would be easy, but because he knew that God was in it. And he knew that it would be fruitful in the end. And that's, that's where he had his, his mind. His eyes were focused on the horizon of what would come. And we should see our calling in the same way. We need to have a determined will to accomplish what God has given us to do by his power, by his strength, not on our own, not on our own strength, but for the glory of God, with the confidence of knowing that he will be with us and that it, it's worth it. So it's good. Think for a moment. Perhaps there are areas of calling which you've been neglecting. Perhaps you just know right away, man, I'm really frustrated. And take heart in light of what we see from, from Jesus. But there's another thing that we need to notice here about Jesus. Because it's not just that he finished this task um, and, and did it with a cold, distant, hard heart. No, what we see from him is that his mind was set determined, but his heart was full. So, so first thing we saw was the determined will of Jesus. Secondly, we see the compassionate heart of Jesus. And this brings us back uh, to the heartbreak that we were talking about at the beginning. Because the next thing in our text here, it, we see Jesus express great sorrow because of the rebellion of his people against God. Look at verse 34. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. So by Jerusalem here, uh, he means the people of God. It represents like the people of God uh, in general, but certainly at the time, the Jewish people. Uh, if you look through the Old Testament, you see some interesting language about how God speaks about his people. It's very uh, affectionate. It's very intimate. Uh, he uses language like my beloved or my betrothed. See, God chose these people. He saved these people multiple times. He established them as a nation. He provided for them, but they kept rejecting him. If you look at the Old Testament, they keep turning their back, going a different way, ignoring his commands. Uh, they worship other gods. In so many ways, they, they turn their back. They reject their God. And so God tries to help them, tries to help get them on the right path. He sends prophets 
who come and speak truth into the lives of the people. Sometimes words of rebuke. He's trying to say, look, he's warning them. You, you need to turn back and go in the other direction. But the people, when this happens, well, they turn on them. See, when Jesus says here, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, he wasn't exaggerating. He wasn't, he wasn't using like a figure of speech. This is actually what happened multiple times. Here's one example for the prophet Zechariah. He's coming to the people of God, sent to help them, get them back on the right path. Second Chronicles 24, when the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against him, and by the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. So this is the kind of thing that happened over and over and over again. And eventually, God said, okay, I'm, I'm going to bring your enemies against you. And he brought the enemies of Israel, and they conquered, they conquered Jerusalem, conquered uh, the people of God. And God did it to chastise his people, to humble his people, so they would see the, the, the effects of sin. But from that catastrophe where the people of God were almost wiped out, God saved a remnant and he began to restore his people. And here we are hundreds of years later and in fact there has been some restoration. There's a new temple rebuilt. There's a people, there's stability and the same thing is happening again. Right? This time, God the Father doesn't send a prophet. He sends his son to go and, and to speak truth to actually save his people and they're rejecting him too. It's the epitome of stubbornness the epitome of self-destruction. And you would think that at this point, with Jesus knowing everything that he knows, seeing the whole history, that he would just be completely fed up. Like you would think that he would go, you know, always goes by himself to pray with the Father on a mountaintop. You'd think he'd find a mountaintop and that he would just sit down and he would pray, look, Father, this is pointless, right? These people are never gonna change. They're never gonna listen. I'm here in the flesh doing miracles in front of their eyes. The blind are seeing, the lame are walking, and they don't want any part of it. They're threatening me. The leaders who are supposed to be shepherding the people are threatening me with death. That's what's going on here. This is, let's just forget it. Or, or maybe he would just be bitter. You could see that too, where he would say, okay, look, Father, I, I will do this, but I'm gonna do it for you, not for these people. Hey, they can have my, they can have my body, they can have my blood, but they can't have my heart. See, either one of those responses, I think, would be understandable. And for many of us, they would be familiar. Because we are tempted towards these kinds of responses when the people in our lives act this way, act in a self-destructive or hurtful way, especially if we've been supporting them for a long period of time, especially if we've been working with them, trying to, trying to get them back up on their feet uh, praying for them, working for them, helping them out, providing for them, whatever it may be, and, they, and things just keep falling apart. They keep making a mess of things. Their credit cards are maxed out again. They've lost their job again. They failed their course again or haven't even registered for their course again. Started drinking or turned away from God again and again and again. See, there's lots of ways that human beings can destroy themselves. And people do it all the time. But it's different when it's someone that we love. Someone that we're close to. Someone that we're desperately trying to help, but they, they just they keep breaking our hearts. And we find ourselves wondering, 
how long can we go on? We can feel our heart growing harder and harder each day and we're just not sure where this is gonna end. Which makes the words of Jesus here so helpful. Because what we see in Jesus is that while he has reasons, real reasons to be angry with this rebellious people, in fact, his heart is full of love for them. Look at verse 34. He says, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? Now, I don't think we should hear that, especially that last part, with an accusing tone. Right? This isn't an angry rebuke. This is a lament. His heart breaks when he thinks about the stubbornness and the foolishness of the people, not, not because of how it hurts him, but because of what it means for them. He sees that they are lost and helpless, that they're running in the wrong direction. He wanted to care for them. He wanted to protect them, right? Like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but they weren't interested. And of course, if we're, if we're honest, we can see ourselves in this. Right? This is a picture of us in our sin. Each of us have done this to Jesus more times than we can count. Even though he's done everything for us to have life, and an abundant life, we turn our backs on him. We allow temptation to overcome us. We run willingly and stubbornly back into destructive patterns. And every time we do it, we believe that he wants us back even less. And so we end up farther and farther away from him. And what we see here is that, look, sin doesn't just break God's rules. It does break his heart. It does grieve his spirit. But amazingly, astoundingly, even though we keep bringing this heartache to our Lord and our Savior, his heart is still full of compassion. It's still full of love. And we see it in the last verse in particular because the last verse is like the gospel in miniature. Just one verse, but we see the, we see the justice and the hope of the gospel. Uh, verse 35, Jesus says to them, Behold, your house is forsaken. Now, this actually is a prophecy of what's to come because in AD 70, uh, the Romans are going to come in and they're going to wipe out Jerusalem again. They're going to take down the temple again, burn it all. So in a, in a real sense, their house is forsaken. But the truth is that this is what awaits all of us if we remain in our sin. Eventually, we will be forsaken by God forever. This is what hell is all about. It's a place for people who want nothing to do with God and are removed from his blessing. And this is the justice of the gospel. The truth that in this universe of justice, there will be an answer for evil and that it will come on the day of judgment and those of us who don't claim the name of Jesus have repented of our sin, that this is what will happen. We will be forsaken. But notice that Jesus doesn't end with justice. He ends with hope. Verse 35, he says, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, see, ble say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, there's a, a lot packed into that, the last part of that verse. Uh, this is a quote from Psalm 118. It's also a foreshadow of when Jesus enters Jerusalem. He's on a donkey. Everyone's saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it's also a foreshadow of his future second coming when he will return. And, and he will be seen clearly as the, the king of the universe. And people will bow before him and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the, the key point unifying all of these illusions is this, our only hope in death and life, is to see Jesus as he truly is. Is to cry out when we see him, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. To understand that he is our, our savior, a compassionate savior, the son of God who comes in the name of God to accomplish the purposes of God in the world and in our lives. If we are willing. 
if we stop running away. So I think there's two main ways to apply this text for us today. To sort of see what we see here about Jesus and apply it to ourselves. Depending on how we see ourselves. See, it may be that, that we can see, we have clarity, we can see that we are, we are kind of like the people of Jerusalem. Right? That, that we are unwilling to heed the call of Jesus. That we've been struggling in terms of going back and forth, perhaps, walking with Jesus for a while, abandoning him. Could be that we are locked into a pattern of self-destruction. If that's the case, if we know there's a hardness of our heart, then we need to hear the heart of Jesus here. We need to see what he's saying here because he, he didn't stop until the door was open for us for forgiveness. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't dissuaded. He wasn't pushed aside. He wasn't stopped from, from bringing the, the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy that we needed. He knew it would cost him everything, but he still did it. And even to this day, even for those of us who know Jesus and yet have turned our backs on him again and again, he isn't bitter. He isn't angry. He isn't fed up with us. His heart breaks for us. He's full of compassion for us. And he still wants us to find hope and blessing in him. Which is possible just simply by humbling ourselves. By acknowledging, look, I, I need you. I've been running in the wrong direction again. Please, Lord Jesus, help me. That's the one way to see this text. And if the Spirit of God is laying that upon your heart, if you're feeling that, I encourage you to respond to that. But it may be that we don't see ourselves like the people of Jerusalem. It may be that we, we see ourselves more like Jesus. Meaning that we are brokenhearted for certain people in our lives that are locked into this kind of a, a sequence of, of rebellion or, or self-destruction and we aren't quite sure how to respond with love. It's very clear that we are to love everyone in our lives, our enemies, our close friends, everyone, even those who are in a difficult situation. But how? How do we respond with love? So this is our question. Sort of the question we'll end with. How do we love those who seem intent on self-destruction? Because it's, it's tough to know whether we should have tough love or, or gracious love, whether we should be, you know, how do we respond? So I'm going to give you some uh, suggestions uh, based on this text. So a question again, how do we love those who seem intent on self-destruction? Number one, uh, we shouldn't carry the burden of their sin. We shouldn't try to carry the burden of their sin. See, think about it this way. If, if God's own people can reject him, then it, it can happen to us. As parents, as siblings, as friends, th there will be people who turn their backs against us, who abandon everything that we've taught them, and what we need to understand is that their sin is not ours to bear. Now, we have to be careful. Uh, if there are wrongs that we have committed against them, if, if there's areas where we are at fault, we, we definitely need to go to them and confess and apologize. In fact, it's, it's crucial that, for example, children hear us as parents say, look, I, I'm sorry, I, I see now that that was wrong the way I treated you or I shouldn't have spoken that way or the way I handled this. Can you please forgive me? That reveals the fact that the, the gospel is actually at work in us, that we're humble enough to admit that. But in the end, each person is responsible for their own sin. We, we see that. Jesus says to them, I would have gathered you together, but you weren't willing. Meaning he's saying to them, look, ultimately this is on you. This is your choice. And so for us, in terms of being with others who are 
running away from the Lord, we, we can't carry that on ourselves. It's going to crush us. And it's not rightfully our burden to bear. Second thing is that we should speak the truth in love. Uh, Jesus loves these people more than we will ever love anyone. That's just the, the depth and nature of his love. And yet he still tells them, your house is forsaken. Why does he tell them that? Doesn't seem like a very kind thing to say or loving thing to say. He tells them that because it's the truth. That is the truth. That, that's the, that there are serious consequences for rebellion and he's making that clear to them. It's loving for us to make clear that there are consequences for the way that people in our lives are living. The challenge though, the key, is the way that we share that truth. That, it, that we actually are speaking the truth in love. Because a lot of the times, we like to share those kinds of truths in a self-serving way. To make it clear, look, see, what, see what's happening? I told you that would happen. Remember I told you? If you had listened to me, none of this would happen. That is not a helpful dynamic. That's about us, puffing ourselves up, feeling superior, trying to prove how we were right. What we really need, and we need to pray for this, is to have a heart that is for the person we're talking to. So that instead of, instead of nagging, instead of um, you know, being at them all the time, that, that we can really speak with a sense of truth, but a sense of grace. So it's not right to point out the consequences of someone else's sin if it's uh, about a desire for us to be right or about control. But it is right if we want to warn them. Uh, it's not loving to have people in our lives who are living in a self-destructive way and never talk to them about where it will lead. Right? To never talk to them about the concern we have for their soul. That's a loving thing to do if we do it in, in a loving way. Third thing is that we should probably set some boundaries. We should probably set some boundaries. When Jesus says to them, you will not see me until you say, and then the rest of it, he's making clear that, look, while you are in rebellion against me, our relationship is going to change. You're not going to be close to me. You're not going to see me in the same way. There's a natural separation that occurs when we rebel against God. It's just the, the nature of sin. And there's wisdom for us here in terms of trying to figure out how to have a relationship with someone who is in a very, very dark place. So imagine you have a sibling, right? Adult sibling who's uh, taken up drinking again, right? Fallen off the wagon in a sense or drinking heavily again. And we've tried to help them. We've tried to intervene, but it's not going well. At a certain point, we have to decide what, what is most loving for them. Uh, probably it's the case that we need to start setting up some boundaries. And this is where we need some discernment again. We need to pray about this and ask for help from others because sometimes the most loving thing to do when someone's in a difficult spot is to say, look, doors open wide. Anything you need, uh, uh, I can, let me pay your debts. Let me give you a place to live. I just want to support you and make you know that you're loved in that way. But there are other times when the most loving thing to do is to say, look, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't give you any more money or you, you can't stay with us. You can't, you can't come to your niece's birthday party because it, it, it's not helping you when I help you that way. And so we need to pray that, that God would give us wisdom in terms, of, in terms of what is the right thing to do in, in every situation. And we need to be clear that we're doing this for them. 
not for us, like not because we're tired or exhausted or, or just because we're concerned about our resources. It really needs to be, Lord, what is the healthiest thing for them and for us, especially if there's vulnerable people involved? And the Lord will give us leading, especially as we talk with others who've been through that, which is the value of the church. The fourth thing, though, the last thing, is that we shouldn't lose hope. See, uh, the rebellion of others is really a test of faith for us as well. It it really brings us to the point of wrestling with what do we believe about God when the darkness is very, very thick around our lives or around the lives of someone that we know, when, when the pattern of sin seems so entrenched, when they're running so far from God, what, what do we believe in that moment about what God can do and what he's capable of, what his heart is for those people in our lives? See, we need to recognize what we see here about Jesus. He is determined to bring good into the lives of his people. He calls himself the good shepherd. And one of the reasons that he calls himself the good shepherd is because the good shepherd leaves the 99 who are safe in the pen and goes out for the lost sheep. And that's his desire for the people in our lives. We need to remind ourselves of that, that we also We're lost sheep. We also are recipients of grace. We all needed second and third and fourth and 74th chances to come back and experience the forgiveness of God. And thankfully, as long as it is called today, the offer of the blessing of God remains. The the door to heaven is still wide open. And if the door to heaven is open, then our hearts also need to be open to the people in our lives. It's not right for us to shut them off completely and close off our hearts and stop praying for them and just thinking that they're right off. That's not how God sees the people of the world. Just because the people in our lives are in a dark place, it doesn't mean that God is done with them. So we shouldn't be done with them either. We should take to heart what we see about Jesus here. We see his determined will. We see his compassionate heart. And both of those things mean that he will accomplish his tasks in the world not just to atone for sin, but to seek and save the lost and actually apply that salvation to his people. So we shouldn't lose hope. We shouldn't lose heart. We should lean into the the grace and the power of God to soften even the hardest heart and to bring people back into the fold of God, just like he has with us many times over. So I'm gonna close with prayer that God would help us to, to have that heart and to live this way with the people in our lives. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that it's very difficult for us to love people this way. Lord, it's, it's encouraging to see your determination in terms of your love for us. Lord, it's what we need to hear for some of us who, who are struggling right now, who are hard-hearted in some ways and and not really believing that you're actually interested in us and that you'll be merciful to us again. And yet it's very clear here, Jesus, that nothing nothing is gonna stop you from showing us love. And so I pray that we would turn back to you. I pray for all those here that are in a state of just really wrestling with their faith maybe or just other questions they might have. I pray that you'd help them to see who you truly are. And I pray for those of us that are wrestling with how to love people in a difficult place, Lord. I pray that we also would be struck by your heart, by your grace, by by your compassion, and may we have that same compassion. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us wisdom 
to know when and how to have conversations with the people in our lives, maybe hard conversations, but I pray, Lord, that we would do it in such a way that, that the love of Christ comes through, that people would see that, that, that we actually are for them, that we love them, that even if we're having a hard conversation, it is because we love them. And I pray that you'd help us do that in a way that isn't our wisdom, our strength, but it's, but it's your wisdom and your strength. And so please, Lord Jesus, would you move amongst us? May your spirit give us what we need. And may our hearts truly soften to you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.